0: Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Posh Virtual Receptionists and Axiom. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Kevin M. Cruz and Julian E. Zelizer. They're the editors of a new collection called Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Great to be here.
0: Just to start off with, Kevin, could you talk about how you and Julian began working together? I understand that there was a previous book that you worked on together.
2: That's right. We're colleagues at Princeton University in the history department. We co-taught a course uh, when Julian joined the department on uh, U.S. history since 1974. Uh, and we decided to turn that into a book. So we wrote a book called Fault Lines, which is a history of the United States since 1974. So we'd, we would worked together on a past project and we are looking for something new.
0: And Julian, how did the idea for this collection come about?
1: Well, I think different things were going on. Part of it was just us observing what was taking place in the public square and hearing uh, in the media or seeing books coming out or just reading social media and seeing so many things that were at odds uh, in terms of thinking about American history, with what very respected, good historians have been writing about and finding for decades at this point, and we felt there was a need to respond. Part of it was there's just a lot of very good historians who are out there, whether they're trying to use social media like Twitter or on op-ed pages or television, offering insights and trying to contribute to these important conversations on issues like race relations or immigration and we wanted to give them an opportunity to to kind of expand and to write in the form most natural to all of us short punchy accessible but detailed essays that give a full picture of what historians have been working on in all these realms of the american past
0: and let's get to the title myth america now some of our myths i think of oh you know george washington and the cherry tree but those weren't precisely the kind of myths you were talking about. Kevin, you wrote about the Southern strategy. Could you talk a little bit about how you selected this as a topic for Myth America and what you think myths do to us as a nation? Can they be positive or do we just need to really be looking at what the actual facts of the history are? Well, we need to look at what the actual facts are.
2: I mean, I, I would say there are some myths that are, you know, maybe myths clearly, but but not pernicious. And so the, the example of Washington with the cherry tree is a good one. That inspires our children, to be honest. I'm fine with that. Uh, it's not, you know, leading us astray in terms of contemporary policy or, or closing off options for what we might do in the future. But a lot of the myths we tackle are are much more politicized myths, ones that are meant to distort the past in an effort to twist how we understand the present and the future. And the Southern strategy is a good example of that. And, and this came about from some uh, work I've done on Twitter in responding to people who, uh, in just the last decade, have started to argue that there was no such thing as the Southern strategy. Now, this was – if you told me a decade ago I'd be fighting uh, against people who were claiming that that was a myth, I would have laughed at you because it was just so – standard and central in the narrative of what historians and political scientists knew about uh, the past. And in fact, the Republican Party itself had tried to reckon with this. You know, um, Ken Melman, the chairman of the RNC, apologized uh, to the NAACP about 15 years ago for the Southern strategy. Michael Steele, another RNC chairman, apologized for it. Uh, There was an effort on the part of the party, it seemed, to reckon with this past and turn the page. But in the last decade or so, there's been a new cottage industry on the right, which has decided not to reckon with this past, but to just pretend it never happened. And so there have been those who have asserted at the Southern strategy, which was the Republican effort to win over white Southern conservatives who were segregationist by making peace with segregationists, that this was all a myth. Uh, but it's simply not true. It's It's obvious and laid out in plain sight. It's in... The documents of the Nixon administration and Goldwater—it's in the—it's uh, in the archives. It's in the public commentary at the time. It's in these people's memoirs. They talk about it openly. So the idea that this is somehow fabricated just simply doesn't hold water.
0: And it's interesting that you say that. You know, 15 years ago, you would not have thought that there would be a rewriting of this history. And, and Julian, when I was reading your chapter on the Reagan Revolution, one of the things that's been interesting about being in my 40s and watching. Trends from my youth and high school years come back into vogue again. Is there's a lot of recounting of what it was like in the 1980s or 1990s? And I'm thinking about my own life and my own experience, and I I'm like, guys, I, I don't think that was it. I that wasn't my experience. I don't I don't think this is what was happening. When you looked at the 1980s, what are some of the things we tell ourselves now about what was going on that just aren't backed up? by the data and historical recountings that were actually being made then?
1: Yeah, so so I have this essay on the Reagan revolution. And I, I would say it's not a myth that's as pernicious as what Kevin just described, where Basically, what we know is just wiped away intentionally and often for explicit political reasons in terms of how we remember the GOP in the case of his essay. This is something you hear left and right. And the Reagan revolution posits really two things, that one, in the 1980s, the the country was swept up by a conservative revolution and the legacies of liberalism, the New Deal, the Great Society, the anti-war movement – we're just almost erased. It was a revolution. Reagan won, and he starts with a clean slate that really forever changes American politics. And two, that as Reagan did this, he was a consensual figure uh, in American politics that everyone fell in line, so to speak, and ultimately, um, you know, was was behind what he was doing, including Democrats. It often goes who were uh, figuring out how to embrace Reaganism with a, a slight tweak. And so my essay argues that neither of those really captures both the 1980s and what followed. That liberalism, uh, ideas, liberal policies, liberal interest groups remain very much part of America's political fabric. It's more like a civil war in the country over ideas rather than one side winning over another. And related to that was that this is the reason Reagan was an incredibly controversial president. A lot of resistance from the Democratic Party, from many, uh, the nuclear freeze movement, and, and many sorts of organizations who were not on board um, with what Reagan was doing. And when his term ended, it was a kind of very contested period that I think still explains a lot of what's going on today. So it was important, I think, to try to give a much richer Uh, a nuanced understanding of what that decade is about, which I do suspect would resonate with many people, including myself, who lived through it.
0: So let's get to the other contributors. When you were thinking about putting together Myth America, first of all, how did you recruit the other authors? And second of all, as a group, how did you define the project? Were there limits to, say, time periods that you were considering? Did you all Work together to make sure that it was, you know, kind of evenly divided. How did that work, Kevin?
2: It started with uh, just us responding to what's been going on in the last few years. There really has been a a general assault on American history, uh, and largely coming from the political right. Uh, we saw this in, in the Trump administration, with the, uh, uh, the not just his claims about, you know, where his administration stood in American history, but distortions of American history itself, the seventeen seventy six project that he, he advanced to have a, uh, what he called patriotic education. We've seen it in recent years, uh, even after the Trump era has come to a close, at the state level, with campaigns in Florida and Texas and other places against certain kind of uh, textbooks. And even beyond that, it's been all over social media. There have been uh, efforts to, uh, to rewrite the past in ways that simply don't fit with the historical record. So we started with addressing some of the biggest issues that are out there. So again, for Julian and I, it was a Southern strategy. And the Reagan revolution, well, we thought about some other things that were out there, some distortions of the past, and we already knew there were great historians out there reckoning with this, right? So uh, people have been fighting over Confederate monuments. Well, Karen Cox is one of the best people out there to talk about uh, that issue. Or uh, they've been talking about a white backlash. Larry Glickman at Cornell, uh, one of the best people about that. And he's already been working on these issues. So we got people who were already kind of wrestling with these issues. And we said, let's all get together and and, and rather than writing these big, sprawling monographs that we hope people will read. Let's write short, snappy essays that we can get out there, and a general audience will be able to read and consume uh, in a way that's, that's helpful for them and helpful to the nation. So we
0: really started with that point. Fascinating. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear word from our sponsors, and when we return, I'll still be speaking with Kevin M. Cruz and Julian E. Zelizer about the book they edited, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past. You're no stranger to compromise. You're a lawyer. But getting the legal team you need is a compromise you shouldn't have to make. Like when you have to invest in hiring a full-time generalist lawyer when you need a highly specialized IP counsel, or when you don't want to bring in your external law firm with their partner level price tag. Axiom can help you match the right legal resource to the right matter at the right cost for the right duration. No legal leader should compromise their high standards, and with Axiom, you don't have to. Learn more at axiomlaw.com slash ABA. Are you looking for a podcast that was created
1: for new solos? Then join me, Adriana Linares, each month on the new solo podcast. We talk to lawyers who have built their own successful practices and share their insights to help you grow yours. You can find new solo on the Legal Talk Network or anywhere you get your
0: podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. Although the Modern Law Library is, you know, we're, we look at a lot of things that are directly relevant to lawyers, the neither of you, as far as I know, is an attorney, lawyers, I find, are fascinated by history. And you know, my own father, who was an attorney, you know, his, his undergraduate degree was in history. And, and that helps when you're looking at, you know, case histories and backgrounds. But I have to say one of the chapters in here, I had fallen for this myth. This is Akhil Reed Amar and its founding myths. So working with attorneys and and talking to them, they love the Federalist Papers, talking about the Federalist Papers. And really, uh, James Madison's number 10 holds kind of a hallowed position for many of them. They go back to it continually. And I assumed, oh, that must mean that at the time, Federalist Paper number 10 was very influential. And that doesn't appear to be the case, according to him. Could you... Either one of you speak to that because I think Federalist Paper Number Ten, like I said, has a real place in people's hearts who are in the law. Yeah,
2: this is a piece by uh, Akhil Amar at uh, Yale Law School, and and what he shows are are two things that, if you think about Amar are actually a little obvious in, in retrospect. One is that we think of the Constitution as being Madison's Constitution. Uh, but as Akil shows him at peace, uh, it was, of course, George Washington's Constitution. He was the, uh, the, the figure of it all eyes were looking to, not, uh, you know, kind of the young, uh, I think still teenaged James Madison at the time, but rather the hero of, uh, of the revolution. And so they were taking their cues uh, from him. The Federalist Papers are certainly an important part of that project, but uh, um, uh, Madison wasn't the only one. He had two co-authors. And uh, as Akil shows in that piece, uh, Federalist Papers uh, 2 through 8 were actually much more relevant and much more um, compelling to those who were directing the Constitution uh, than Federalist 10.
0: Those are the ones that were actually reprinted and redistributed during the time that the Constitution was being written and you know, talked about, much, much more so than Federalist Paper number 10. That's exactly right. My next question is going to be to you guys as historians. Obviously, I think you both have expressed how you feel that this is a dangerous period for our country as there is a battle about what is history. I also think about how we are not funding history departments in universities terribly well. And I just want to talk to both of you. You both have mentioned the importance of social media to historians offering another way to get in touch with an audience and and really discuss what your research is showing. I'm going to ask both of you, if you don't mind, what this social media approach has meant to you as a historian and where you think we will be able to discuss these historical matters as a country moving forward. Uh, Julian, I'll start with you.
1: Yeah, I think look, it's it's been good and bad, like any form of technology. The the good is it's broadened the opportunities for historians, many of whom, some are high profile, some are not, uh, but to intervene in some of these debates, not only. Uh, through a tweet or or a Facebook post, a Meta post, forgive me, uh, but also even putting documents out there along with their comments on issues as they emerge. It's a quick media. It's a somewhat democratic media, and it's one that I think has just given us opportunities to hear from many different scholars. Some, you know, from medieval scholars to scholars such as ourselves which otherwise might have been much harder. The the guardrails are not uh, quite as strong in social media as they are in other parts of the media, where there's also a lot of good work taking place from historians. And obviously the negative is the guardrails are not very strong. And so with the opportunities come some of the drawbacks. Uh, it's also a place, social media, where a lot of misinformation circulates very quickly. It's hard often for many consumers of social media to distinguish uh, between what's solid and what's good information and what's bad. And it's also very hard to stop uh, the dissemination of things that are simply not true, Uh, not disputed. That's one area where both of us encourage and are excited by genuine debates but where things just don't match up with what we know. And so for me, uh, overall, I still think it's, it's, a, it's a very good uh, development. It's been very useful, and we're trying to capture some of the voices from that arena in the book. Um, but we both are aware of the real drawbacks that this has resulted in.
0: And Kevin, can you respond to that? Social media has in
2: many ways uh, been a cause of our current problem. When it was developed, You know, uh, when the Internet came about, everyone said, oh, good, everyone's got a voice. Well, the problem is, oh, everyone's got a voice. Uh, And there are a million different competing claims out there. Uh, And as good as it democratized it, it also uh, made it harder to sort through what's true and what's not. But at the same time, uh, it's given every individual out there, every scholar, every historian, political scientist, what have you, their own uh, microphone and megaphone to push back against that. The advantage I think we have here is that there are claims made that are wrong. We don't simply say, oh, that's wrong, because then we're just another voice in the conversation. But you can use things, like on Twitter, you can use Twitter to kind of show the receipts, to show the actual primary evidence, to show um, you know links to uh, actual historical scholarship, to provide video and audio clips, which kind of make it clear that, yes, this thing actually happened. Yes, it actually went down like this. Yes, this is important. Uh, and that helps cut through some of the noise.
0: As a social media consumer, certainly I don't want to be falling for newly constructed myths, things of this nature. I really have been thinking about this since Russia invaded Ukraine and the war began there or really continued. I guess it's been going on since 2014. But last February, I was not well reversed in Ukrainian history and I wanted to know more. And there were a number of people immediately on social media, the one that I use most is Twitter, but of course there's also others. Who were offering these giant long explainer threads. But because I came from a place where I did not have a grounding in the subject beforehand, I didn't really have a way to know who's a charlatan and who actually has been doing research in this subject and really knows what they're talking about. And I just wondered, are there any tips you have for people who enjoy reading threads about history? Are there any tips you have for Things that may tip you off to be like, oh, actually this person may not really know what they're talking about, might not actually be grounded in this area, and you may be just consuming more myths.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, some of it is incumbent on the consumer because I think what you're saying is a big problem and risk, and you have to look up who you're reading. Uh, Just because you read it on Twitter doesn't mean it's good or true. Um, So, I mean, that is literally part of what we're trying to do in the book. So you're taking someone, for example, like uh, Glenda Gilmore, a a phenomenal historian uh, who has spent her career writing about civil rights and race relations, has deep knowledge, not just in documents and facts, but in the literature and what historians have debated um, where there are genuine debates that continue and where there are things that are just not true. And and she's spent and devoted a whole career to this. So she's on Twitter, but you read her, and I think you can get a better sense of confidence that what she is saying has merit and value. You might not agree with it, um, but this is a serious voice, but you you need to look at who you're talking about or who you're reading. And I just think it's uh, it, it's easy not to do that. You also have to expand. Social media is one tool. But if you're really interested in learning about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, I don't think your education could end there. I mean, then if you're serious, do more reading in in other forms of journalism, in in books, uh, online classes. But I, I think some of that is really essential because that gets back to some of the limitations of social media, not just limitations, but ways in which you can easily get pushed into directions that are just not very accurate uh, and don't add value to your knowledge.
0: And listeners, Glinda's chapter was The Good Protest, and I found it fascinating. So again, if you're picking up Myth America, historians take on the biggest lies and legends about our past, that's definitely one I would flip through. We're going to take a quick break from our interview, and when we return, I'll still be speaking with Kevin M. Cruz and Julian E. Zelizer.
2: Today's legal news is rarely as straightforward as the headlines that accompany them. On Lawyer to Lawyer, we provide the legal perspective you need to better understand the current events that shape our society. Join me, Craig Williams, and a wide variety of industry experts as we break down the top stories. Follow Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network or
1: wherever you subscribe to podcasts.
0: The Digital Edge Podcast. Where the law and technology intersect. I'm Sharon Nelson, and together with Jim Calloway, we invite professionals from all fields to discuss the latest trends, tips, and tools within the legal industry. Stay up to date on the rapidly changing legal tech landscape with the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Lee Rawls of the Modern Law Library. Another thing I enjoyed about this book is it does not have to be read from page one to page. I'm guessing here, 320. You really can pick it up, as you said. These are easily digestible chapters. I I would say most of them are about only about you know fewer than fewer than 20 pages. And I really enjoy books like that where if I only have you know say half an hour of time, I can dive in and learn about a specific chapter. So that I'm just saying to my listeners uh, it's something that I enjoyed about myth America is that something that you both worked on when you're in your editing process making sure that each of these while you know addressing a particular myth and that's the theme of the book you still can pick it up at any point and enjoy a chapter individually
2: yeah absolutely I mean the you know this was a collective project and we thought about the chapters and, and maybe some points of overlap and connection between them but by all means they can be read. Uh, on their own terms uh, uh, individually. And we wanted them to be kind of a resource for people who, you know, if you hear something about uh, the New Deal or the Great Society, the Reagan Revolution, you can just dip in and read that chapter. You know, you want to talk about civil rights protest or America first, you can just dip in and read that chapter. and that's And that's fine on its own.
1: And I say, I think, I mean – I mean, we were delighted. We have been delighted at the reception to this book. I remember when we learned we made the bestseller list. I had two reactions personally. One is, wow, that's incredible. But but another reaction, which has always been important in this book, is that I, I think serious history can be done in ways that are engaging to people. And I think there is a thirst out there for history. And and like we spoke about how consumers of social media need to do some work uh, as they read i think the producers of history uh, good historians also have to do work to to write things that are digestible and communicate great knowledge in ways that are both fun engaging and in this book where you don't have to read the whole thing at once you could read it in different orders it's a, it really doesn't matter each is a standalone piece and we really wanted the book to be that way so that different people with different interests could pick up the parts they want to focus on, or they could read different elements of the book at different periods. And that was our intention from the start. We really wanted to show, look, right now, a lot of people don't think well of the Academy. Uh, That's just uh, how things have evolved. And I think many people feel the Academy uh, is often under attack. And, And Kevin and I wanted to showcase some of the great voices that can write essays that read like a a book of short stories, um, that they're that enjoyable to be read the way you just described.
0: Another thing that's interesting to me is that one of the chapters of the book, uh, Vanishing Indians, actually describes the harm that can be done when a work by an historian becomes very popular, but the historian himself did not do background work. And here I'm talking about the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. Uh, And that was another chapter that I found fascinating because, you know, I had heard, of course, of the book. I don't believe I ever was assigned it in any, any courses, but it, it seems pretty fundamental. And then Ari Kelman, who wrote the chapter, is talking about the various problems with that work, including the fact that, you know, D. Brown does not appear to really engage with the indigenous communities that he was writing about.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a great example. And this is a hugely popular book and one that was written with, I think, good intentions, right? I mean, what D. Brown wanted to do was to call attention to what he thought was the Uh, You know, the overlooked plight of Native Americans. But as Ari notes in that piece, the book, I think unwittingly, advanced a, a declensionist narrative one in which Native American society is uh, constantly under fire uh, and suddenly crumbling and ultimately defeated, right? And so it underscores this idea of what Ari calls the vanishing Indian trope, uh, that Native Americans are somehow uh, rooted in the colonial or the old West past uh, and aren't part of our present-day society, right? Which is simply not true. Uh, But a book like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee uh, assumes that uh, the Native American identity is buried as well. And again, not the case.
0: The last question I'd like to ask you both, you now have access uh, via this podcast to address directly a number of lawyers. And certainly, as I brought up before, lawyers are interested in history. Lawyers use history in their legal arguments. Is there anything that you would want to speak directly to the legal community about when it comes to myth-making in America?
1: Well, I mean, look, lawyers and the legal profession, as as I think you mentioned earlier, are fundamentally historical in how they think of interpretation and how they think of understanding what legal decisions should be today. So there's a natural fit between the two uh, professions. There are specific parts of our book that are issues lawyers deal with all the time. Again, whether it's dealing with Uh, What were some of the founding arguments that uh, were being made about democracy in this country? Or questions about policing and urban unrest um, that often follows cases of police harassment or violence that I think would be very helpful to lawyers uh, dealing with some kinds of questions. But ultimately, uh, I would conclude by saying there's a synergy between what good lawyers do and good historians do. Yes, the first thing is to marshal the facts and to find as much evidence as possible, which is an unending process. There's always more evidence to find, but the key is you're looking for it. And then B, to really become familiar and dive into deep and rigorous analysis, interpretation, and genuine intellectual debate. And I think what we're trying to do with this book is, is what I assume the best lawyers, and I certainly know many of them, aspire to do in their profession. So just the intellectual exercise that the book is trying to put forward, I think, would be valuable uh, to lawyers who uh, are doing this on a daily basis.
0: Well, thank you so much, Julian. And now I'd like to hear from both of you about what your next projects are that you're working on. Kevin, what are what are you working on? And if people were interested in finding out more about you, where could they go?
2: Well, my my next project is actually one that I hope will be near and dear to lawyers' hearts. It's a, a story of the Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice. I'm using the papers of, of John Doerr, who was uh, uh, the head of the Civil Rights Division in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, to write, try to recreate what those government lawyers did and their role in the uh, in the civil rights struggle. People can find me. I'm on Princeton's uh, website. I've got a. Uh, uh, I'm on Twitter, Kevin M. Cruz, and uh, we're, I'm in bookstores near you.
0: And Julian, how
1: about you? I'm working on a book right now about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which was a group of Black Mississippians, primarily, uh, who go to the Democratic convention in 1964 in Atlantic City, New Jersey and they demand to be seated at the convention instead of the all-white delegation whose power kind of rested on their being disenfranchised. And it's about that moment, why it was so important and impactful on the evolution of civil rights and what it teaches us today. I write a weekly column for CNN and appear on their network, and I appear on NPR so you can see me or hear me in any of those realms. And I'm on Twitter as well, at Julian Zelizer.
0: Well, thank you to Julian Zelizer and Kevin Cruz for coming on to talk about the book they edited, Myth America, Historians Take On the Biggest Lies and Legends About Our Past. And thank you to you, my listeners, for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. You can also reach out to us if you have a book that you think we should consider, and that address is books at adhjournal.com.